Well, hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to what I guess officially is another episode of the Wit and Whiskey cast, but what it is in all actuality, another round of our epic console war battle royales. I am your uh, predetermined winner, Mark Rossetti Jr., here as always with uh, the jobber making up the ranks, my good buddy DJ Gag. Uh-huh, yeah, we both know I'm going to win this round. It, it's actually kind of fun because this is probably the one that I've put the most half-hearted attempt into defending my side on just because we were both on the same side on this one. It's true. <laughs> Although, did you actually have a PS2? Uh, I did, but okay. I had one way, 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 way later. Like, I bought one when the PS3 came out because I wanted to play Kingdom Hearts. Okay, interesting. You bought yours actually later than I even bought mine, and I bought mine pretty late, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into all... We're spoiling it, folks, but yes, we are going to do the one we've been threatening basically since season one, uh, GameCube versus PS2. Notice how we're not talking about the Xbox? Somebody gives a fucking shit about the Xbox. <laughs> I knew one fucking kid that had the original Xbox, and he was a loser. Uh... So, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the GameCube. We're going to talk about the PS2. Uh, we're going to bring back loads of nostalgia. Uh, but before that, what did you do this week, buddy? Well, uh, I was off all week, which was glorious. Um, we we did talk a, a bit about this in our Thanksgiving special because, um, you know, we, we talked about throwing a Friendsgiving and, and cooking, but it, that was just... Awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We get to see some friends this week. Did a lot of Christmas shopping. Uh, so, so it was kind of nice to knock some of that out. Um, we are, I mean, it's like boring winter stuff for the house. So like uh, my snowblower is going to get delivered this week. We're also having somebody come to deliver a generator so we can finally, you know, have that peace of mind this winter. Um uh, so it's like, I, I feel like these are like the last house things, and then we're just going to batten down the hatches and just paint indoors for the next, like, f- six months. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to do the reverse of the hibernation, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. We're, we're going to batten down the hatches, and then, I don't know, just kind of hang out. My Christmas tree's up. We put our Christmas tree up the day after Thanksgiving, as one should. Wow. No wonder why it's fucking snowing here already. <laughs> How about you, buddy? I was off most of this week. I had to work a few days, but we we take a bit of a break for the holiday. Uh, you know, we had the Thanksgiving dinner, the modified Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday with swashes of both sides of the family. Basically, everyone that, I don't want to say got left out, but everybody that got shuffled around and either didn't, didn't make their own dinner or in the pa- place of, uh, in the case of my poor Uncle Steve, I can talk. Uh, <laughs> the rest of his family went to Disneyland and he got stuck at home because of work and things. <laughs> so he came over uh, and, you know, we got both of the grandmothers together for the first time in like two years or whatever and they were all about it. So that was fine. Black Friday, I drank way, way too much at a party I was invited to at a old school traditional gentleman's club not the way our listeners are thinking of it but think an 1800s gentleman's club you know tweed blazers pipe smoking and no women as far as the eye can see 
but they had a big Black Friday blowout that I was able to get an invite to, and we basically drank the place dry of whiskey. And then I went to a used video game store and spent way too much fucking money (laughs) because I have to spend something because I haven't bought a car yet. It's been, what, two weeks since I sold the Roadster. Still don't have anything yet. (laughs) Starting to get a little itchy. You know, I I don't don't know. I'm not used to this. Did that last car not pan out? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of depends on what day I call the guy. And as you well know, DJ, patience is not exactly one of my virtues. No. So uh, I think, you know, I'm supposed to have a call with him tomorrow. And if it doesn't go the way it's going to go, I think he might be told exactly where he and the horse he rode in on uh, can go. But uh, that's that. But overall, it was a nice week. Just relaxing, hanging out, eating too much, drinking too much, petting the cat too much. Usual shit. Oh, yeah, of course. So, you know, I'm okay with it. We're going to pick up this week. Uh hit it hard at work because the Christmas tours are coming up, God help us. And then it'll just be cruising on to through the inevitable wasteland that is the Christmas season. You mean amazing time of the year and can't wait for it to happen. No, it's already fucking snowing and I, I can't stand it. Like we got like two <laughs> inches last night. And the only thing that kept me from just loading up a shotgun was the fact that Romulus didn't have a clue what snow was. And was just staring out the window, losing his mind. (laughs) And then, like, looking back at me, like, why are you so calm? Look at this shit. (laughs) So that was kind of cool. But otherwise, fuck the snow. (laughs) All right, what are you drinking this week? Uh, Well, I I thought it would be kind of cool, now that it's season four, um, we haven't had a lot of opportunity to, like, revisit uh, whiskeys that the other person drank yet. Okay. So um, I definitely have uh, Wild Turkey Rye slated for later in the season. Um, But I thought I would delve into uh, Knob Creek because you've reviewed both the bourbon and the rye. uh, Correct. But I haven't actually done either of them yet. So I I did a cocktail today, but I started with uh, Knob Creek. Uh, 100 proof nine year bourbon. It's good shit. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um, I was actually really lucky that when I first started drinking whiskey, uh, it was either you or Lou or, or someone in our friend group recommended Knob Creek, and I that was one of my first whiskeys. So you know, I I didn't start with anything rot gut. I didn't start with you know Jim Beam and can. I definitely was able to try something pretty good. Uh, It's a pretty decent price point, and it is one of those that comes in the 375 mil bottles pretty easily. So if you're not quite sure and you want to give it a try, you don't have to quite commit to a whole fifth. Um, But it's really good. It's a a solid bourbon. Uh, The tasting notes on it are pretty standard. You know, there's a little bit of caramel. There's there's some, um, a little bit of vanilla. But, um, you know, it... It's pretty standard for a bourbon. It's got a nice dark color. It's good. It's I I I laugh sometimes because like Knob Creek to me is like the entry level whiskey, and I know so many other people are like ripping their hair out, going, "You idiot!" Like that's not <laughs> that that's an expensive whiskey to have for your entry level. But have you not heard of Bankers Club, good sir? <laughs> I know, right? So, um. I, I actually really like it. I have nothing bad to say about it. I don't, I, I, it's not chemically like some of the really cheaper whiskeys can be. 
Um, it's not super high end. It does have some really great tasting notes and it's just a really good daily driver. So, uh, but I turned it into a whiskey smash, which is a cocktail that I have talked about quite a few times. Um, and the whiskey smash is like a whiskey version of a mojito. You swap out the rum for whiskey, you swap out the limes for lemons and and you've got uh, a whiskey smash. Uh, the cool thing about the whiskey smash is that, um, it's lemon instead of lime, so I, I, I don't know why. I, I don't know if you feel this way too, Mark, but I tend to feel like drinks that have lemon instead of lime just taste cleaner to me. I mean... I don't know I why. get what you're it, saying. They're it, definitely smoother. Yeah. But I... See, I like lime better because I actually I prefer more of a tart in my drinks, so I, I will go with lime, but I definitely get what you're saying. They definitely are smoother with lemon. Yeah. So uh, a whiskey smash, the one I made today, is uh, a tablespoon of white sugar, uh, eight mint leaves, muddle it up, uh, and then throw in, like, half a lemon cut cut into wedges. Um, I usually do, like, you know, I'll cut up half a lemon, and then I'll, I'll cut it in, in a quarter. So it's like you've got, like, I guess four eighths of a lemon, uh, and then I throw it in my muddling. Isn't that one it. half? Yeah, it is. But you know, <laughs> the See, way I, I cut know it math. Up. You're 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 good. Um, and then uh, I muddle it up. I throw in the whiskey. I stir it up a little bit, and then I pour in some ice. I shake it, pour it into a glass, and you can kind of do uh, you can do like a clean version where you double strain it into a glass with fresh ice, or you can do kind of a rustic version where you. Just dump everything from the shaker into your glass, and you get the lemon in there, you get the mint in there. Um, doing it the rustic way means that you're probably going to get some uh, some notes, smell notes. I can't think of the word. Uh, smell notes of lemon um, throughout your drink rather than just kind of uh, what's what's in the, the liquid. Uh, and then you garnish with a mint sprig. You know, slap it in the palm of your hand, throw it in. It's really good. It's one of my favorite. It's like a go-to whiskey cocktail. It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit fresh. It's a little bit citrusy. And then you've got that whiskey at the back end. So it's it's probably one of my favorite go-to whiskey cocktails. Um, you know, you, you'll hear Mark and I talk a lot about our Manhattans and our old fashions. But uh, th- this is kind of a good, like, if you're not quite sure and you want to try a whiskey cocktail and you maybe don't want to commit to the spirit-forward cocktail that both the Old Fashioned and the Manhattan are, uh, a whiskey smash is a good way to kind of get your feet wet. I would argue that the smash might be to you almost what the Manhattan is to me. It's close. It might be. Um, you don't order them quite as much as I order Manhattans, but I, it, it, it's close. I, if we were on the SATs, I think that would be the analogy. <laughs> it's pretty good. But what about you, buddy? What are you drinking? I'm drinking an abomination, and I blame you for it. Oh, okay. And, and allow me to explain why. Come on, fucking swinging, dude. No, no, no. Here's, here's my justification for this, all right? Last week, you... Uh, now, you, you didn't do it for your drink review. You did it for Tools of the Trade. But you were talking about recreating some old cocktails of ours. Mm-hmm. And you started with the Squirtle. And, you know, it was a, a fine time was had by all, even though we were lamenting the loss of the gamepad. But you accomplished your goal in one way. You made me feel very nostalgic. And you inspired me to attempt to put a twist on 
one of my own cocktails. Now, number one, I don't have a photocopy of the uh, gamepad's menu, and I wasn't there nearly as much as you were, although I, I did enjoy it greatly the times I went. No, I decided to go back to what was my old faithful drink when I first started drinking whiskey before I discovered, like, actual, real whiskey cocktails. Yeah. And I said, oh, I'm going to take my original drink, which actually for a while at the Plains Pub, uh, when that was still a thing, was actually just called the Wallio <laughs> after me, and I'm going to put a twist on it. Now, are you ready for what uh, it actually was? Mm-hmm. The original Wallio was regular Jack Daniels, two parts, three parts Red Bull. Oh, Jesus. And one part of Sprite. There's your lemon lime again. So I decided to play with this slightly. (laughs) And I found a recipe online for what is called the Irish Energy which is basically Jameson, Red Bull, and lime juice. Now, I don't keep Irish whiskeys in the house generally unless I'm reviewing them. But I thought, well, I drink rye now, and I have Jack Daniels rye. So I could play with that, do the Jack Daniels rye, the Red Bull, and instead of the 7-Up or the Sprite, I'll replace it with the lime juice just to try it. It's fucking awful. (laughs) (laughs) Now... In the initial Wallio, your first hit on the palate was the Red Bull. Because Red Bull's a strong flavor, let's be honest. But then it mellowed out and you got the whiskey burn from the Jack. And just sort of the 7-Up was there to keep the bubbling going, to keep the sweetness going. And it sort of tied everything together. This doesn't work on a few levels. Because you still initially get, bam, that huge hit of... Red Bull, like you do, but then it fades off into that rye taste. You know that rye bite that all ryes have? Yeah. Where it's almost like the bread? Yeah. That's the second stage you get. You don't get any whiskey. You just get the bread taste. And then the aftertaste is the lime juice, which does nothing but taste like lime juice. (laughs) So basically, uh, you may as well just finish it off like you finish a tequila shot and just eat the lime. It's the same fucking taste. So I don't like this. I don't recommend it. Uh, Younger me was an asshole. (laughs) I I don't know why I thought this was ever good. Uh, Although maybe if I go back and recreate the original Wally-O, maybe I'll I'll view it through rose-colored glasses or something. But no, uh, rye and Red Bull don't miss. That's today's top tip, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, I could have fucking told you that. I am told by a friend of the show, Allison, that uh, even the most obvious things need to be proven through experimentation. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the assumption is fine. I don't know. She claims the scientific method is important or some shit. I don't really listen to her most of the time. And after today, I'm definitely not going to listen to her. So, (laughs) All right. What in the Sam hell do you have for tools of the trade? Save us. Like gag on the lime juice here. Well, I thought uh, it would be kind of interesting to talk about uh, kind of taking tools of the trade in the direction of um, like stocking yourself up with cocktail ingredients. And we've talked about bitters in the past. We've talked about um, various syrups and things. And so I thought I'd I'd kind of dive into some of the herbage that you might want to use 
And I realized like this might have been a better topic for the spring when people could actually start planting these things outside. But eh, fuck it. Let, let's let's create an <laughs> indoor cocktail garden. Well, so, I mean, I just assumed that, you know, you too saw Chuck Todd on TV this morning basically predicting the downfall of humanity due to this uh, new COVID-19 variant. And you want us to all have a garden in our bunkers. That's just what I thought it was. Oh, yeah, uh, Sure. <laughs> So we'll go. We'll go with that. If, if you haven't seen it, ladies and gentlemen, go on YouTube. I'm sure it's on. Yeah, I'd... he he was just in full on panic mode to the point where poor Dr. Fauci, who was on TV live, had to be like, "Calm down, <laughs> maybe a little, please." Yeah, yeah just, <laughs> the CDC is still investigating. They don't think it's as bad as Delta. Just f- fucking shut up. Um, anywho, so uh, I pulled the five hardiest herbs that you could plant inside and have yourself a mini cocktail garden. Now, in terms of planting equipment, maybe I'll do another tools of the trade on that at some point. Um, I I feel like I could get pretty deep into the how to maintain your cocktail garden, Uh, but I'm just going to talk about the uh, the, the five top cocktail herbs and how to use them, what they pair well with, and how to grow them inside. Seems like a lot, but we're going to blaze through this. So mint is number one, uh, and there's many different variants of mint. There's chocolate mint, there's peppermint, there's spearmint. Uh, there's wintergreen, which is technically its own thing. Not, not really a mint, but it's fine. We won't get into that. Um, mint as a family, as a plant, is extremely invasive, um, which is why I definitely recommend starting it inside and see how you do. Uh, it's extremely hardy. It grows well inside. Uh, it, it sucks up the water, uh, but it doesn't need any crazy drainage. It doesn't need crazy amounts of sunlight. Um, but if you're going to plant mint inside, give it a nice big pot and don't put it next to anything that you care about. Um, because mint will creep out of its own pot and shoot off roots and take over other pots. It, It is pretty invasive. Um, but if you are a big fan of the mint julep or the whiskey smash and you're using your mint pretty regularly, maybe making some tea from it, maybe infusing water with some mint here and there, pairing it with some cucumber, um, you've got a lot of options. And if you're using it regularly, you don't have to worry too much. Um, mint pairs very well with citrus, specifically lemon and lime. You can get it to pair well with orange, but I'll, I'll give you a better option later. Uh, as I said, cucumber... Uh, any other botanicals, so uh, it, it pairs very well with gin. It pairs well with vodka and whiskey. Uh, it, it pairs together with most common liquors. I, I feel like the only thing I don't see it paired with is rum. Yeah, that's yeah, that's pretty rare. Yeah, uh, it's great as a garnish. It's great as an infusion. You can turn it into a syrup, but I don't see a lot of mint syrups. Um, you can turn it into bitters and maybe I'll get into someday, uh, how to make your own bitters. Uh, next up is rosemary, uh, rosemary when, when it's been growing for a while, the stalk, it's pretty woody, uh, and it stands straight up with these long, thin leaves coming off of the, the stalk. And there's a lot of stalks in a pot. Uh, so rosemary is really easy to grow. It grows well inside, but it does like a lot of light, um, Rosemary is one of those plants that you're going to, if you're going to plant it, you're going to want a small pot and you're going to want to use it um, because uh, cutting it back actually helps the plant stay healthy. Uh, 
it pairs really well with gin. It pairs really well with whiskey. Uh, There's a lot that you can do with rosemary, but it does have a bit of a woody taste. So anything that's barrel-aged would go well with rosemary. Third up is basil. Uh, And basil's a bit more temperamental. It likes a lot of light but you can grow it inside. So make sure it's, it's at a window that gets a lot of sunlight during the day. Um, basil is part of the mint family, but it's got, uh, its flavor profile is a little bit more clove, a little bit more pepper. Um, it, it's used a lot in, uh, Italian cooking. Uh, and it pairs really well with surprise, surprise gin. Gin's going to be on every single one of these cause gin is botanical. Um, It pairs well with tequila. It pairs well with rum. It also, in terms of flavors, basil pairs much better with orange uh, because orange likes uh, likes spices and not necessarily the the mint side of the house. So um, anybody who's had like an orange spice tea can tell you how well those pair together. The, The orange brings out the clove and the basil in a really nice way. Number four is sage. Uh, sage, uh, has its own, like, kind of hippy-dippy, you know, cleansing the air stuff. I'm not really into that stuff, but it it is really tasty. Um, with sage and the fifth one I'm going to mention in a minute, use them sparingly. Uh, basil and mint, you can just throw in and muddle. Rosemary makes a good simple syrup, or you can muddle with it, or you can, you know, it, rosemary is very flexible. Sage, uh, a little bit goes a long way. Uh, it's a it's a large flat leaf that's usually got a lot of flavor in it. You only need one, maybe two, um, for a good cocktail batch. So uh, experiment with sage. It's got some really great flavors. It's one of my favorite herbs to work with. It does grow well inside. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of light um, demands, but I would put it with your basil. Um, the the big thing sage needs is uh, soil drainage. So. You know, set up your pot in a way that it it's okay that it, if some water goes goes through the pot. Um, sage goes really well in simple syrups. Uh, syrup, syrup, syrups. I, I would use sage in a simple syrup all day because it's a really great way to test the waters, figure out your sage flavors ahead of time, and then you know what that how that simple syrup tastes and can balance your cocktails with it. The last one is lavender. Lavender is the same sort of thing. It's it's used sparingly. A little bit of lavender, a little bit of sage, they both go a long way. Um, again, uh, pairs greatly with a botanical gin, um, but uh, lavender is one of those, I wouldn't, I almost wouldn't use lavender on its own. I would exclusively use it as either a liquor infusion or a simple syrup. That way you can kind of control it and you can back off a little bit. Once the lavender's in your drink, it can overpower things really quickly. Um, But a lot of water, a lot of drainage, um, middling sun. And there you go, top five herbs to use in cocktails. While I know a lot less than DJ does in this topic, I will just say we here at the Historical Society had a uh, period vendor fair for, you know, 18... 1800s vendors and things a few weeks ago and I was put across I was doing uh, fruit based ink and quill pen demonstrations and they had me set up across from the lavender vendor (laughs) and even though she was a good 
25 to 35 feet away from me, all I smelled all day <laughs> yeah. was lavender. It was wonderful, don't get me wrong, but it, it, it's uh, powerful. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. The, another option there is rose, too, but lavender and rose have the same exact problem. That I, It's just like so little goes a long way. And uh, that's kind of why I like using fresh lavender if possible. Because uh, if you get it dried, it's just the flavors just concentrated. <laughs> At least if there's uh, if it's fresh, you can you can kind of play with it a little bit more and and steep it in some water, make a simple syrup out of it. Um, I, I wouldn't go to the store and get food qual- quality dried rose petals anytime soon. No, I don't. I don't quite recommend it. Yeah. What do you got for whiskey news this week, mate? Well, it's fun that you said mate because this actually comes from across the pond. <laughs> uh, this is actually from the BBC Newswire. And the headline is Man who dislikes whiskey collects 4,000 miniatures worth 35,000 pounds. Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, for those of you who don't speak British, uh, miniatures are nips. And a gentleman named Brian Marshall, who lives over in England, has uh, close to 4,100 unopened nips of various types of whiskey that he apparently started collecting around 1987 when a work colleague brought him three bottles back from a trip and said, here you go. And uh, his exact quote here is, I told him, I don't like whiskey. It's absolutely horrible. So, but apparently his colleague said, well, you could just start to collect these. And he did. So he's been collecting them since 1987. He is uh, moving houses and no longer has the room for the 4,100 bloody bottles. And he has contacted uh, Market Harborough, who is a uh, auction house over in Leicestershire, uh, which gave him a value of right around 35,000 pounds, which... I've quickly run it through the latest exchange rate. That is $46,661. Jesus. For those of you playing the home game. And uh, it includes a few books as well. But, uh, yeah, he had no idea. He's obviously very excited. I mean, if somebody told me I had a chance at $46,000 for what is basically junk, I would be all about it as well. Uh, so if you're interested in this, the link to the auction is available. It hasn't started yet, according to this, but you can bid online, and I'm sure they have a full itinerary, although they're selling it in two parts, so you can't just buy individual nips. You have to buy half of the collection or half of the collection. So, yeah, if you've got 23 grand <laughs> lying around. If you've got 23 grand lying around and you like really obscure whiskeys, I mean, most of them are obviously from Scotland and Ireland, which would make sense, being that he's in the UK. He also has some from America, some from Canada, some from Uruguay, Australia, and Iraq is also mentioned on the uh, auction site. So, hey, you know, take a look-see. And I've never heard of someone having a collection that big that apparently utterly despises whiskey. Well, you know, man, uh, we've been talking about getting a celebratory nip of, uh, <laughs> uh, of you know, uh, Johnny Walker Blue. Maybe this is the best way to do it. 
It might be. Uh, he also apparently has a 35th anniversary nip to commemorate the anniversary, not of any particular distillery, but of Private Eye magazine. So that is going to go up for auction. <laughs> Why is that a thing? I have no idea. The English are weird. I love our English friends, don't get me wrong. I've been to England a few times in my life. It's a very cool country, but it's just weird. <laughs> it's just... I could see why we as Americans went, eh, no. <laughs> it's just... It's a little off. Uh, well, well, uh, Mark is insulting all of your heritage. Uh, I just wanted to say that we, we love our UK friends. Uh, shout out to my buddy Niall, who listens occasionally. So if you ever get to this episode, buddy, we love you. Um, so uh, don't listen to Mark. He's just a grumpy fuddy-duddy. I'm not shitting on Niall. I'm just saying he's weird. <laughs> he would say I'm weird, and I probably am. Two things can be true. To be fair, uh, Niall is in Ireland. Oh, all right. Well, then there you go. Then he's mad that, you know, I even brought up the concept of an Irish energy. Because I can't imagine that anyone in Ireland invented that drink. No, probably not. <laughs> now, uh, as do we I, have enough time to actually do the main topic? Tonight? Oh, oh, we do. And I think I'd like, you know, I, I've won all of them before. So I, I think I'd like to, you know, let the loser go first. So. Why don't oh, you just kick us off of with the BS2? Well, what I'm thinking here, you know, as we just sort of format on the fly, I'm thinking maybe we could do the nuts and bolts uh, of the launches and the specs and whatnot, and then, you know, I'll do it for the PlayStation, you could do it for the GameCube, and then we can go through our gaming list. Well, in my case, I can go through my list of notable games that you should play, my recommendations, and then we could start your list and see, you know, how many of the 400 we actually get through. <laughs> it's true. I'm recommending an awful lot of games for a system you can't play, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I will basically just say this. Uh, if you don't feel like listening to the end of this episode, go on Wikipedia. Type in Nintendo GameCube catalog. That is DJ's recommendation. No, no, no. I restricted it down to less than 20. Oh, gee, that's mighty fucking white yeah. God damn. All right. Uh, I mean, to be fair, as I was researching for this episode this week, I definitely read like 16 or 17 50 best GameCube game lists. I I'm recommending four, uh, one of which I guarantee you pretty much everybody's listening has probably dabbled with. And then the other three, uh, maybe not. Mm. I think I'm going to be disappointed because you're not going to name my favorite of that generation. Well, I, I see, I, I don't know. I didn't look at your list. I imagine you did the same as I did. I mean, I, I can't read that much unless it's before bed. Uh, but <laughs> I imagine you as well limited it to exclusives. Um, no. Yeah. Oh, see, I limited my list to exclusives. I, I kind of did. There, There is a couple in here that may have come out on other systems. I, I know of at least one that did. I think most of these are exclusive, though. All right, fair enough. Well, let's get to the nitty-gritty. I have chosen the PlayStation 2. And full disclosure, I was late to the party with this. Uh, I... I had a GameCube first. I actually bought my GameCube on launch day. I had it pre-ordered. And then I was out of town when it actually launched. And the poor old man had to go and wait in line at an EB Games, which used to be a thing for our younger listeners, and had to pick it up. 
And I came home from my little mini trip in that November to a just pile of boxes because the, well, I'm sure you're going to talk about the launch, but the GameCube launch was very interesting in that they only sold bundles. Yeah. Uh, so we have that. But I, so I did not come to the PlayStation until several years later. Uh, and one of the games I'm going to recommend is actually the game that got me to finally go, huh, maybe there's something into this. Now, it was originally released in the year 2000, uh, November, well, no, that was Australia. Uh, it was actually October 26th, 2000 was the release date for the PlayStation 2. And there is a very good argument. I'm not going to try to make it today because we don't have the time for the banter or everything. But if you were writing a history book, if you know we're 300 years from now and society has collapsed completely and you were writing the chapter on video entertainment systems, you can make a very compelling argument that the PlayStation 2 is the greatest video game system of all time. And I mean, the, well, the numbers don't lie. And I'm going to give you a few numbers here. So it released on uh, October 26, 2000, as I said. Do you know when the last game was released? No. 2014. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when official Sony repair support ended? Twenty eighteen? Yes, actually. Yes. <laughs> September of twenty eighteen, almost twenty nineteen. In that meantime, they sold, as near as makes no difference, one hundred and fifty six million consoles, which is the most all time by far. Uh, they sold nearly one point actually just over one point five billion individual games. Uh, that's multiple copies. They didn't have that many titles released. But they actually had 10,035 titles. That is a library for the PlayStation 2, if you want to start collecting, folks. It has a five-figure game library. Yeah. Now, that being said, it was very humble beginnings. Uh, again, I did not have one at launch. I had basically no interest in it at launch. So I did not remember just how shitty the PlayStation launch lineup was. Uh, unlike the GameCube, it had a, a solid numbers-wise launch lineup. It had 29 different titles. Uh, but I'm just going to go through this list and tell me, is there anything here that you would really want to play? There's like only two I'm interested in. But you have Armored Core 2. No. Dead or Alive 2. Dynasty Warriors 2. Uh, none of those three I've ever played. ESPN International Track and Field. Dear God. Which I actually have for the Saturn. ESPN X Games Snowboarding. Maybe. Eternal Ring, which I have no idea what that is. No. Evergrace, which I also have no idea what that is. No. Fantavision, same thing, no idea. Gun Griffin Blaze. That sounds pretty good. Uh, I have no idea what it is, though. It's from a company called Working Designs. A lot of great games in their catalog, I'm sure. Uh, Kessen, K-E-S-S-E-N. Madden 2001, which I had for the 64. No. 
The original Midnight Club. Okay, we've got something. Okay. <laughs> Moto GP, which is a motorcycle racing series. NHL 2001. No. Orphan. AJ would like that. <laughs> Q-Ball, the billiards master. Maybe. It's actually made by Take-Two Interactive, apparently. <laughs> Ready to Rumble Boxing, round two. I actually never played round two. I believe that was the one that had Michael Jackson as a secret character. Ridge Racer 5. Mm. Silent Scope. No. Smuggler's Run. Was it a Star Wars game? No, no, it's like a racing beach game. No. The original SSX, which yes. is easy for me to say, although Tricky was much better. Street Fighter EX3. Mm. Summoner. Maybe. Swing Away. How's that? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm assuming it's some sort of sex game. Tekken Tag Tournament. No. That was actually okay. I think I played that either on the Saturn or the Dreamcast. One of the Sega systems I had that for. That was okay. The original Time Splitters. I do like Time Splitters. Unreal Tournament. No. I played that on PC. Wild Wild Racing. No. And the X-Squad. Is that that like was your XCOM? PlayStation 2? What's that? Is that like XCOM? I have no idea. That is your PlayStation 2 launch lineup. And if I can misquote the great Jeremy Clarkson, it's like the menu on a Scottish restaurant. Not a lot on it and absolutely nothing you want. Uh, so needless to say, it was struggling when it launched. It was going up against very shortly thereafter the Sega Dreamcast. But Sony had in their sights, they didn't really have Sega in their sights. We don't know if they anticipated the Dreamcast's failure or if they just thought it was a different market because if you're our age and you remember the Dreamcast launch, the Dreamcast was advertised really more as an arcade console, a lot of good pixel-perfect arcade ports, a lot of what we would call you know Japanese-exclusive uh, titles, and it also was big on the network gaming, internet gaming, which was a very strange and foreign concept to everybody that had dial-up. So uh, we're not sure if Sony just didn't consider the Dreamcast a threat or if they considered it an entire market entirely. But their eyes were on uh, the Xbox project and uh, the original Project Dolphin, which later became the GameCube. Mm-hmm. So uh, it had a very rough launch as a video game system because, Jesus Christ, those launch titles are fucking terrible. However, what was the Trojan horse for the PlayStation? What was the actual reason it sold 156 million bloody consoles? It wasn't the system. It was that it was a DVD player. Yeah. And it was that it was a $300 DVD player. It was dirt cheap. 50% uh, of the reason why I got the game or got the system was that one of the games I'm going to talk about later. And the other 50% was to have a DVD player because I wanted to watch Big O on DVD. Great fucking anime. Watch Big O. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't have a DVD player. It's very hard. If you're a younger listener... 
And you went through the very weird change from DVDs to Blu-ray. It is very hard to explain what a Titanic shift VHS to DVDs were. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, uh, cartridges to discs. Cartridges to DVDs. Yes, although that... Let's be honest, Nintendo was lagging behind there. That had already happened. The, yeah, it had already <laughs> happened, but it... I'll talk about that. Um, that that had already happened, but I mean, I can remember when my parents went and bought a DVD player because they're like, "Well, I guess we have to. You can't get tapes anymore." I mean, I want the the first VHS players were the late seventies. I want to say it was seventy eight, seventy nine. It didn't really take off until the mid eighties, but you figure eighty three, eighty four, until two thousand one, really. You only had one form of media. And okay, I know all the cinema files right now are going, what about the Laserdisc? Fuck off. Nobody had a Laserdisc player. Just go away. They're a fun novelty. If you see one at a convention or a yard sale, you point and you giggle and you walk away. Yeah, because nobody has um, a player anymore. No, nobody has a player. I mean, it's, it's like the kid that still has the original Neo Geo. <laughs> like, you pat him on the head and you walk away. So... Once it finally went to DVDs, it was insane. DVD players were fucking insanely expensive. I mean, my parents were late to the party to actually buy a purpose-built DVD player. I had my PlayStation 2 long before they bought one, and I think they still paid like 400, 450 fucking bucks for it. So the idea of a $300 DVD player was insane. (laughs) Sony tried to replicate this with the PS3, and Blu-ray, but number one, there's not much of a jump from DVDs to Blu-rays. There just isn't. I don't care what anybody says. And number two, they priced it at six hundred dollars, mm-hmm. which wasn't much cheaper than a Blu-ray player. So, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't have a whole hell of a lot of that. Now, interestingly enough, uh, they after just two years in May of two thousand two, they cut it from three hundred dollars to two hundred dollars, which put it directly in competition with the GameCube and that was really very quickly the head-to-head matchup because as I said the Xbox just no they had Halo and not much else now DJ I told you before we went on air about history repeating itself yeah are are you ready for this now Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you this little bit of really fun thing here and when I get done I want you to tell me if any of this sounds familiar So in September of 2004, they released the slimmer PlayStation 2, (laughs) which I don't know. Did you have an original one or did you have the slim? I got one very close to the end of its cycle and I got the super hyper slim one and I ostensibly Mm -hmm. bought it uh, because we wanted a DVD player in our bedroom in our first apartment together. And uh, we also wanted to play Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy VI. So, now, did you have any issues with it? No, none. Okay, because the slim ones were pretty notorious for their unreliability. I, I've had both. I still have my original PlayStation that I bought in uh, oh, late 03, early 04, the, the fat, chunky one. And then I had a slim one that I bought for the camper when we started getting serious about racing, again, just to have a DVD player in the camper. And it we had all kinds of problems with it. But anyway, so in September of 2004, they're going to make the slim PlayStation 2. 
So they stopped the manufacture of the original PlayStation 2. This way, all of their distribution centers can empty their stock and they can go through. They had a manufacturing issue. They had a microchip issue. And uh, there were part shortages. So by the time it came out, all of the old units were gone and the new units were, weren't ready yet. So there was a system shortage. And then to compound it, in, at the end of 2004 going into 2005, a Russian oil tanker became stuck in the Suez Canal. <laughs> blocking shipments of PlayStation 2s coming from Japan. Although that mostly affected the European market, but still. Uh, to put it in perspective, in one week in November, the end of November, British sales totaled a mere 6,000 units when in the first week of November they had totaled over 70,000. More than 1,700 individual distribution centers in North America reported that they were sold out on the day before Christmas in 2004. So, yeah, it's just meh. Uh... Interestingly enough, you know, we get into some of the hardware here just because I get to use uh, my favorite word, which I just learned uh, this week doing the research for this, and that is gigaflops. Oh, yeah. It has 6.2 gigaflops, which was good back then. I don't know what the fuck a gigaflop is. Uh, it was powered by the Emotion Engine CPU unit, which was a joint project by Sony and Toshiba. And it was a completely bespoke CPU just for the uh, PS2. See, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get fucking on my soapbox here. We need to bring back bespoke chips for consoles. That's the problem now. Why you can't get any? They're all using the same goddamn chips as everybody else. Mm. The GPU was a custom piece as well, and it was referred to by the awesome turn of the century name of the graphics synthesizer. With X's, right? Graphics. I wish, but no. <laughs> uh, but Sony claimed that it was capable of rendering up to 75 million polygons per second. Uh, interestingly enough, it did have HDTV capability right out of the box, although it was only 480p. Some games, including one I'm going to talk about a little bit later, were able to go into progressive scan and upscale into sort of a poor man's version of 1080i. And again, this is fucking 2000, the year 2000, folks. They did come up with a uh, internet connector that supported either dial-up or broadband. I don't know anybody that had the one for the PlayStation 2. I knew people that had the one for the Dreamcast. I knew one person that had the one for the GameCube that didn't do a goddamn thing. Yeah. I didn't know anybody that had the one for the PlayStation. I'm, I know they sold a ton of them. I never saw any of them. Yeah, the only online games that were actually published for the GameCube over here that could use it were, like, the Fantasy Star games. Right, and I, I'm pretty sure my, my one buddy Kyle had Fantasy Star 2, Fantasy Star Online 2. Yeah. Was that one of the ones? But uh, I know they sold a million of the broadband connectors. I never fucking saw one in the wild. Take, take of that what you will. Interestingly enough, and I do not remember this because, again... I was, you know, in junior high and then in high school, but there was actually a loss, class action lawsuit over the PlayStation 2. Oh, yeah? Over the disc read error. Some of the early ones, if you put in certain things, again, this was early technology, especially with the DVD player. 
if you put in uh, certain DVDs or if you put in certain CDs, because that was the sort of Easter egg feature of the PlayStation 2 that not a lot of people even today still know about, you can put audio CDs in and listen to them, mm-hmm. like a jukebox. Well, depending on how these discs were coded, it would just come up as no disc. And so, you know, people, America being America, people sued Sony over this. The lawsuit started on July 16th, 2002, and was settled on April 28th, 2006. Jesus. Uh, And the settlement was the following. Every one of the plaintiffs received $25, a free game from a specified list, which I was not able to find. I did search for that for this episode, and I could not find it. And if you had any uh, problems for the next uh, two years, you were able to get a reduced cost of repair and or replacement, although that was at Sony's discretion. (laughs) So all that for 25 bucks and a free shitty-ass game. (laughs) So I don't know. So stupid. Uh, finally, to wrap it up, the PlayStation gave me uh, my first lesson on memory. It taught me what a megabyte was. They had the eight megabyte memory cards. Yeah. And boy, howdy, when we were in junior high, eight fucking memory, eight megabytes. You you could fit about twenty to twenty five games on there. It never filled up. Yeah. And oh, fucking a, if they only knew now. So that's the hardware. Those are the specs for the PlayStation Two. They're dirt fucking cheap today because they made 156 million of the fucking things. Uh, the graphics, depending on the game, still kind of hold up, and I'm going to talk about two of them that do. But they were just, they were very, this whole generation, and we're not going to get into the generation argument like we did the last time. Uh, the internet in general considers this all to be the sixth generation of gaming consoles. Let's just go with that for That's the sake of argument. Fine. Yeah. The sixth generation started to do really innovative things. You started to see the first mainstream online gaming for consoles. You started to see fun things with memory cards. The Dreamcast had the VMU, which was sort of like a Tamagotchi. You could play games on it. Uh, the PlayStation had the little interactive menus where they had different icons. Uh, the GameCube uh, had sort of you know the little G with the box and things. For games across the generations... If you, had a, if you bought the sequel to a game and you had a save file from the original game, a lot of times there'd be little Easter eggs that would pop up, little save bonuses. Uh, if you, they all had calendars and times. If you set the calendars to different days, shit would happen. Mm-hmm. I remember I had my GameCube. You know, It was a November release. I had it for Christmas that year. All the games went haywire at Christmas. Different shit started happening because the calendar was set to Christmas. And I just remember my head was, my mind was blown by that. So the sixth generation is really when you started to see shit that today looks fucking bog standard, but at the time was really pretty radical. Yeah, it it was amazing. So, all right, give us, give us the main competitor, because as we've established, the Dreamcast folded almost immediately, sadly. And uh, the Xbox was just, (laughs) the Xbox was the Xbox. So give us the the main competitor. Yeah, okay. So uh, ostensibly, if you read by the internet, the PS2 definitely won. Um, And and largely because of the DVD sales, right? Like that that was a huge... That was, it was a Trojan horse. It, It was. And like, I remember being a kid and I was a diehard Nintendo fan. And when the GameCube came out, at the time, I was debating 
getting a Dreamcast. And, like, Dreamcast was already, like, fading into existence, but it had a Sonic game, and I really wanted to play it. And then the GameCube dropped, and then Sonic Adventure 2 dropped, like, a couple months later, and I never looked back. Um, So I still, to this day, because I have a PS2 and I have a GameCube, I've got a 100-game GameCube library easy. I have maybe six or seven games for the PS2. And so for me, I think the GameCube's got a better quality in its game library, and I think it's a better console to go back and play personally. But I think that's also just kind of like circumstance bias, right? Like I got it pretty close to launch. I played it all the way until I got the Wii, like it was a part of my growing up. So I'm very nostalgic for it. The GameCube launched in 2001, uh, September in Japan, November in the U.S., and then uh, well, the EU uh, had to wait another seven months to get it in May of tw- 2002. Sorry, guys. Right. Uh, the launch lineup in Japan was three games, and compared to the 20 games you don't want to play in the PS2, I would have played all three of these. Uh, it was Luigi's Mansion, uh, the original Super Monkey Ball, and Wave Race Blue Storm, which... Around that time, I would have been playing Wave Race games in the arcade anyways. I was going to say, I've played all three of those, and I owned two of them. Yeah. So I, I'm, I don't... I played all three. I think the only one I still own is Luigi's Mansion. Um, the controller... So uh, we talked in our last console war that Nintendo made some decisions for the N64. Yeah, they did. And so... Uh, in order to like not repeat those same mistakes, they actually got in some like ergonomics experts. They went to a more classic handlebar style of their controller. Uh, they uh, put a little bit more pressure on the triggers. There's a little bit, you know, you know, you're getting a little bit more exercise for it. The triggers are two stage triggers in the GameCube. Uh, there's the long pull into the short click, which a lot of later games used. Um, you know. Nowadays, we've got crazy shit on the PS5, like full haptic triggers. But back then, it used to be well, like... I mean, you do. Like, most people haven't even seen a PS5, but... Uh, I mean, <laughs> we as a world. <laughs> uh, we as in this very privileged household that I am recording in right now. Um, the, 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 I remember, like, playing a shooter on the GameCube and, like... You know, you'd pull the trigger back on a later sh- sh- shooter and, like, the gun would zoom in and then you'd click and it would shoot. So you kind of had, like, a little bit more granular control than you had on the N64. Um, we got the WaveBird in 2002, which was the first wireless first-party controller. Um, there were, like, third parties doing the idea of wireless controllers for other things before this, but it was the first time that a... Uh, a console manufacturer was like, hey, let's do a wireless one. And uh, I lost I lost the dongle to my wave bird <laughs> after they stopped making them. Well, I, I actually bought a OG wave bird this week, and it was 75 fucking dollars. Yeah. But it holds up. Oh, yeah, it's uh, an amazing controller. 
I mean, and I, you know, obviously when I had the GameCube originally, I was still living at home. My bedroom at my parents' house was very small. I was never more than 10 to 15 feet away from the TV. You know, I had the loo hunched over the TV. Now being in my living room, being across the room, no, it's still fucking perfect. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh. Um, so the, the GameCube launched in 2001 for $199. And then in 2003, uh, dropped down to 99. So, uh, you know, the, the PS2 kind of dropped down to compete. The GameCube was like, ah, we can do one better. Uh, it came in, like, Game Boy Color purple. Uh, it also Well, yours did. Yeah, it eventually came <laughs> in, like, black and silver, and I think I saw a gold one out in the wild. Um, it wasn't black. It was smoke. I know because I had one. <laughs> yeah. That Mine was smoke. Uh, I had the purple one and my, I still have my purple one and it is covered in Nintendo power stickers. And right on the top is a like Mario for president sticker because, you know, why not? It's kind of, you know, again, with history repeating, it's kind of funny in that there's been all these lawsuits over the PlayStation 5 for like the three people that have one over the faceplates and mm-hmm. popping them off and people making third-party ones and Sony got them, got them patented. I remember when the GameCube came out, when you got your bundle, they had an ad because that black circle on the lid where it said Nintendo GameCube, that unscrewed. Yep. And the whole gimmick was they were going to sell character ones. And then they just never did. They never <laughs> did. I never saw one. Uh I, I actually didn't know you could remove it until like a year ago. Because oh no, me and my buddy had ours off. Like we were like, "Fuck, let's go." Yeah. we we'll give you money. What do you What do you want? Exactly. And it never happened. Um, they had other kinds of controllers, but none of them were were super interesting, except for one that I'm I'm get, sending you a picture of right now, Mark. So okay, uh, where where are you sending it to? In Facebook. Um, so this okay, this uh, controller was only meant to be paired with the uh, online what broad- the fuck? <laughs> broadband <laughs> connector. That's and not photoshopped. No, that is not photoshopped. This is on the Wikipedia page for GameCube, uh, ladies and gents. It is a GameCube controller that has been like Cronenberged apart to fit a keyboard in between the two halves of the controller. It ate a keyboard. Yeah. Uh, and this was uh, sold by a third party who was like s- selling peripherals, official peripherals to be used with the broadband connector. The broadband connector never went anywhere, by the way. Uh, it was Like I said, it was like Star Ocean, and then there was a game called Homeland that never got uh, released in the U.S., so, uh, you know, th- there were some weird peripherals. Um, we got the DK bongos for the DK conga line of video games in 2002. Um, the probably the most well-known peripheral is the Game Boy Player. Did you have a Game Boy Player in yours? No, that came out a lot later on, and I was kind of moving on from the GameCube by it the time out, that. Yeah, it came out in 2003. Oh, all right. I see. I, so two, two years into a cycle. Yeah. All right. If you if I had a gun to my head, I would have said 06, but okay. <laughs> no, no, 2003. And the t- it, it, it was basically, I, I laugh because like, this must've been around the time, like the Fast and the Furious movie started coming out. And it was basically a lift kit for your GameCube. 
Yeah. Uh, and it, it was this, uh, you, you would take off all of the tabs on the bottom of your GameCube because uh, there were these plastic tabs that were meant to add peripherals, including the broadband connector. And you would just glom it in there, screw it in, and turn the GameCube back upside. And it just had, it, it was now like two to three inches taller and had this big black square in the bottom that you could put Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games into. And the the kicker was that uh, it wasn't, it's not all one unit, right? Like there's the hardware that gets attached to the bottom, but then there's the disc you have to put in the GameCube. Yep. And this uh, kind of, it, it, it drifted away from the Super Game Boy in the Super Nintendo days, which was all one unit. And that has led to a really interesting phenomenon for collectors today where the discs for Game Boy Color are super rare and expensive. Just hyper rare. Uh, and, and if you don't have the disc, there's just a dead piece of plastic on the bottom of your cube. Um, so I, I've been very careful to hang on to mine and I know where it is. Uh, and, and it, it basically just lives with my GameCube. Um, but yeah, that was kind of revolutionary because there were, it, you could now play all of these Game Boy games. So it kind of like, it like overnight quadrupled the game library for the GameCube, which was kind of cool. Um, but they also released uh, things like the GameCube GBA cable, uh, which, I mean, fuck, man. Nintendo loves its goddamn cables. Um, but this was kind of revolutionary because it's the first time that Nintendo didn't just let you play the, your handheld games on a system and didn't just let you transfer data from your handheld games to your home console. What they would actually have synergies between the two. You could play both at the same time. So games like Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, if you wanted to play multiplayer, uh, other people could bring their Game Boy Advances and plug it in with a GBA cable, and you had like a little menu on your GBA, and you could see the game up on the big screen. Um, there was an actual item in The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker called the Tingle Tuner, and if you plugged in uh, a Game Boy Advance, somebody could sit next to you and use their screen to, like, drop bombs on your enemies and, like, gift you with health and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a cool little co-op thing that you could do. Uh, the GameCube also had memory cards. They were proprietary. They were pretty small. I was always ripping shit off and transferring between them. They, I must have... Like, at my height with my GameCube, I know where to lie. must have had 15 memory cards. And, you know, every system since the dawn of man that has used some type of memory, whether it be the N64, whether it be the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, the GameCube, uh, the Dreamcast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they all came with labels for the card. Yeah. And I never understood them because it was like, oh, you're never going to write anything. No, the GameCubes were so fucking small. You used to actually write shit on them because you couldn't tell otherwise <laughs> until you stuck it in. Yeah, there were some games that got their own fucking memory cards. <laughs> Animal Crossing being the one I remember. Yeah, um, uh, Bait and Kados was one for me. Uh, I think Custom Robo got its own. Uh, it was bonkers. Um, so, yeah, I, they, I think they had like three sizes for the GameCube eventually. They started out with the... 
the standard gray, and then they had a black one, and I think they had a blue or a red one at one point, but that was later in the cycle. Uh, and and this was like, I I don't know if you felt this way too, but like when we were kids growing up, third party companies making peripherals, it was the wild fucking west. Oh God, yeah, they were. They would either be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like I had a. Uh, third-party controller for my Sega Genesis that was just insane. Mm-hmm. But, or they would just brick your fucking system. Yeah. Like, there was no in-between. <laughs> yeah, no, it was awful. And and I had a couple of third-party memory cards that would just wipe themselves after I would shut off the GameCube. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, I feel like this is the generation where we stopped seeing turbo controllers. It is, yeah. Because I don't... I don't remember any turbo controllers after like N64 era and turbo controllers were these really great things that you could use in fighting games where you could flip a switch in the controller and then hold down a button and it would just rapid press the button for you. I don't remember one for the cube. Uh, they probably existed, but. Or, you know, if you were me and you were small because that awesome, uh, controller for the Genesis was a turbo controller and it had all toggle switches on the top. Half the time I would use the one for the start button just cause it would pause and unpause super fast. It would make everything in slow-mo. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was cool when I was eight. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we, that was kind of it for interesting peripherals. There was a very brief period where, the GameCube tried to get in with competing with the PS2's DVD usage. So they teamed up with the company Panasonic to make a hybrid version of the Cube. Did you know about this? No, I've never heard about this. Um, so it was announced by Panasonic on uh, in October of 2001. And it was released exclusively in Japan uh, for the price of uh, 39,800 yen, which would have been roughly $400. Uh, and it, it it looks ridiculous. It's got legs. It had an independent um, DVD drive on it. You had to switch between playing the game and playing, like playing a game or playing a DVD. So uh, it, it didn't get, very popular and because they didn't really build it with the Game Boy player in mind, Panasonic had to come out with their own Game Boy player later on. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like we start like after this generation, you're not going to see like when we, when we go to talk about the, uh, you know, the Xbox one, the PS three, you know, however they're competing with each other at that point, PS four, maybe. Um, the, the next generation, you you stop seeing custom consoles. You stop seeing as many custom controllers because things just start to get streamlined after this. So like Mark said, some cool shit was happening in, in this generation. In that same vein, uh, later on in the PlayStation 2's life cycle, again, only in Japan, Sony released a TV that had a built-in PS2. Amazing. And thus a built-in DVD player by... Yeah, extension. Yeah. All right, well, before we go into the PlayStation 2 games, I, I will have a fun little thing because, I, as I said, I had a GameCube at launch. 
So I'm going to read you the launch titles for the GameCube, and I want you to guess the three that I had, because part of the bundle was you got three games. And you got the pick from the list mm-hmm. when you pre-ordered. So I'm going to read you the list, and I want you to try to guess what my three games were, okay? All right. So you had, as you said, Luigi's Mansion, Super Monkey Ball, Wave Race, Blue Storm. You also had All-Star Baseball 2002, Batman Vengeance, Crazy Taxi, Dave Mira Freestyle BMX 2, Tarzan Untamed, Madden 2002, NHL Hits 2002, Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader, and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. Huh. Well, probably Crazy Taxi, right? That w- I bought that for the cube, but that was not one of the ones I got at launch. Oh, man, this is hard. Uh, okay, Luigi's Mansion? Nope. Damn. Uh, Batman Vengeance? Nope. Really? Oh, man, I'm... I'm okay, Rogue Squadron? Yep, okay, that was one. Pro Skater 3? No, I got that for Christmas that year. Uh, Madden? Nope. Hockey? I did have the hockey game. Oh, man. Was it Wave Race? No. Oh, I have no idea what the last one would be. It was Dave Mira 2. (laughs) Really? The single most frustrating fucking game on the face of the earth. The GameCube version... That was actually a multi-platform release, and the GameCube version had an exclusive level for whatever reason, and I could not beat that fucking level. (laughs) And I hated that fucking... It was a great game, but I just hated it because I had the version that had the level I couldn't beat. It almost made me want to live in Europe, right? Because I read the launch sequence for the games, and the UK got Bloody Roar, Primal Fury, and Adventure 2 Battle as launch titles. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at across, you know, all three lists. I mean, eventually I would have Luigi's Mansion. Eventually I would have Wave Race. Uh, eventually I would get Crazy Taxi, Pro Skater 3. I would actually pick up Madden. And then you look at the European one, I would have Burnout. I would have uh, Adventure 2 Battle. Weirdly enough, I would actually have that ESPN International Winter Sports game. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I picked that up a much later in the discount bin, but the bobsledding was actually wicked fun in that game. <laughs> so, you know, you look at the launch, and it was like, fucking A, the GameCube had a good first year. It did. Okay, so I'm going to go through uh, my four picks, my four recommendations for the PlayStation 2, because, again, there is 10,035 games. I've whittled it down to four, three of which I don't think most people have played, judging by sales. Okay. And so the first one is actually the one that made me want to go out and buy a PlayStation, along with the fact that they released Big O on DVD. And... If I had a gun to your head in a million years and gave you a hundred guesses, I don't think you would have picked this. It was Manhunt. I don't even know what that is. So, okay, Manhunt was a game by Rockstar. Uh, Not that we should hold that against it. Of course. But the concept of it was you played a man who was an escaped death row prisoner and who was working his way through snuff films in order to secure his freedom. 
Now, this was released in November of 2003. I picked it up early in 2004. And the reason why I picked it up was just the absolute controversy over this game. Uh, It was on the news. It was all over the fledgling internet of the time. Uh, People were just traumatized by this. And it's a dark fucking game. You're making movies about killing people. Some of the weapons are pretty wild. Uh, I seem to recall the first level, you actually get like a plastic grocery bag and you could suffocate people and stuff. And everything you do, they show. It was banned in numerous countries. It was supposedly responsible for a murder in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly enough, one of the stories going around at the time, one of the rumors was that people within Rockstar were actually uncomfortable with the game. And I had never quite really believed that. You know, it's one of those things, blah, blah, blah. But apparently in a recent article by Vice.com, that's actually true. Several people from Rockstar said that they didn't really like it. It wasn't a very popular game within the studio They thought they were just basically building a murder simulator. Uh, Interestingly enough, the Chicago Tribune, of all places, was really complimentary of the game because they argued that it was a, like, turning point in gaming history, saying that Manhunt is easily the most violent video game ever made in history. It will likely be dismissed by many as a disgusting murder simulator with no good reason to exist. But Manhunt is also the clockwork orange of video games, holding your eyes open so as to not miss a single blood splatter, asking you, the gamer, is this really what you enjoy watching? Is this really what you want to do with your free time? Jesus. Uh, Interestingly enough, it only sold 1.7 million copies. And in a fun twist, they made a sequel that bombed terribly, Manhunt 2. And guess what that was exclusive for? Mm, I don't know. The Wii. Good. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it was a fun little turn of phrase because Manhunt, of course, was a PlayStation 2 exclusive. All the games I'm going to talk about are PlayStation 2 exclusive. Uh, The second one I'm going to talk about is probably the most mainstream game. It's the best-selling game. It's probably the one that most people on here are going to talk about, are going to actually have played and that is Gran Turismo 4. Holy fuck, was this game good. (laughs) Even if you don't like racing games, even if you don't like car culture in general, this was an incredibly... This was just a great achievement. I mean, it had been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, Gran Turismo 3 came out not long after the PlayStation... 2 was launched. Uh, it was one of the demos they showed when they revealed the, the system at E3. They had what they called Gran Turismo 2000 that eventually became Gran Turismo 3 when it released in 2001. It wasn't until basically 2005, late 2004, early 2005, that 4 came out. It had over 700 cars on the disc. And this is long before patches. This is long before DLC. This is long before season passes. What you got on the game was what you got. Uh, you could you know, buy cars, modify them, hop them up, race them. They had interesting cars throughout history, and they'd do different things. If you went into showrooms and uh, you would highlight a car, they would actually have like a little blurb on the car. Who designed it? Who did this? You know, some interesting things about it. All of the factory color choices were available. It was a fun little... 
just owed to motoring. If you pre-ordered it, which some of us did, you got a 212-page book, which not only covered you know some of the art and some of the development of the game, but it also had driving guides and lessons uh, on it because at the time it was the greatest representation of the actual physics of racing. You could use it as a tool. Uh, for those of you that were fans of the BBC show Top Gear, Jeremy Clarkson famously... Uh, ran a car in Gran Turismo 4 around Laguna Seca, and then he went and ran the real version of the car around the real version of the track in one of the early episodes just to compare it and how it held up. Nice. Uh, Like I said, it was the most popular. It sold, I forget how many million copies. I have to find that. It sold a lot. (laughs) Like, it was several million copies. Uh, and interestingly enough, this has one of my fondest memories. Okay, by March of 2005, the game had already sold 6 million units. So within three months, it had already sold 6 million units. Uh, it ended up selling a grand total of 11.76 million. So exactly 10 million more than Manhunt, to put that into perspective. Uh I had pre-ordered this game, and at the time, we were, we were mall rats. My friends and I we were hanging out at the EB at the mall and at the arcade at the mall, and I was harassing the manager of the EB, a, a nice man named Tad, who deserved far better than to have me harassing him constantly. And they got the games in a week early. Now, this is a thing that used to happen a lot that you don't hear about these days. Games used to ship when they went gold, and they would have stickers on them, do not sell before date X. And inevitably, places would sell them. 7-Eleven was the worst offender by this. Apparently, some places in the country, 7-Elevens sell games. Well, they got Gran Turismo 4 in a week early, and Tad actually called me on my landline at my parents' house. We didn't have cell phones back then. And he said, it's here. Come and get it and shut the hell up, was basically what he told me. And my buddy and I played it for a week before anybody had it, my buddy Evans. He worked at a Domino's at the time. He brought us free pizza every night. And he lived at my parents' house for a week. <laughs> and we basically had 50% of this game beat before the street date. That's amazing. So Gran Turismo 4 always holds a soft spot in my heart because of that. Uh, the third game is one I actually just completed this morning, and it's my second Rockstar game on the list. Bully! This is an awesome fucking game. It also bombed. It only sold 1.5 million copies worldwide, which is very sad. But you play 15-year-old Jimmy Hopkins at a boarding school, the Bullworth Academy, and you have to go through and get clicks on your side and eventually take over the school. Uh, It was a twist for Rockstar because it didn't have a lot of violence. It didn't have a lot of sexual content, because, of course, you were a 15-year-old boy in high school. Uh, it was open world. It was a smaller map, but it was open world. But they did some fun things. This was one of the first games I can remember where your home base or your menu screen or any hub world, actually, you started to collect artifacts and trophies from different missions. Hmm. Your dorm room in the game, basically anything you did in the game, if you completed it, you would get a little trophy or a little piece for your dorm room. Nice. Uh, Likewise, they also came up with some interesting weapons. Of course, you had slingshots, 
and you had, you know, the stink bombs and the itching powder, your classic novelties. You also got firecrackers. You got bags of marbles to trip kids Three Stooges style. And then later on at the end game, you got a potato gun and you got my personal favorite, a bottle rocket launcher. So this way you could do some serious damage, all of it non-lethal, because, again, you're a 15-year-old kid in high school. You're not going to be carrying guns around. But they came up with some very creative uh, weaponry. The story is interesting, and there's just so much shit to do. There's so many mini-games. You have classes to go through. You have bike races. You have go-kart races. There's a whole carnival in the open world with a million different midway games. Uh, It's just... The game goes on and on and on and on, and it still holds up today. It released very late in the cycle. Uh, It was 2006, I think. Yeah, October 17, 2006. So it released pretty late in the cycle. I was already in college, but it holds up really fucking well today. And then the last one is technically not an exclusive because it also released for Windows, but I don't count that. Uh, It is Saturday Night Speedway. (laughs) and this is a game I know nobody played. It's a joint venture between Atari and a company called Ratbag Games, which no longer exists, and it is a good old-fashioned dirt racing game, short track Saturday night dirt racing. All of the tracks in the game are real. You have, you know, Joliet in Illinois. You have Eldora, which Tony Stewart owns currently, You have Williams Grove, which is only an hour plus from my house, which I've been to. And you race through three classes. Uh, You have street stocks, and you have uh, wingless sprint cars, quarter midgets, wingless sprint cars. And then you eventually get to late models. You, of course, can build different cars. You can upgrade them. But it also had a very interesting sponsorship system where, depending on how well you raced, you got different sponsorship offers week to week, month to month. Uh, it was just an awesome fucking game. It's insanely addicting. I still to this day can waste hours and hours and hours on it. Uh, came out in March of 2004. My only gripe is it did not have steering wheel uh, compatibility. You had to use the controller. But if you are a fan like me, if you are a, a redneck hillbilly that grew up as a young boy going to short track dirt racing, uh, you will thoroughly enjoy this game. And because nobody bought it, even though it's rare, it's pretty cheap. You could pick it up on Amazon and eBay uh, pretty cheap if you have a PlayStation 2. I highly recommend it. I, I feel like I have to like shoot myself in the foot here and add in a few games that I know you're not going to mention. All right, let's see what you have. All right. Th- they're literally all on one wiki page in the Final Fantasy fandom wiki. So, Oh, yeah. So, no, we don't need to talk about any of them. Final Fantasies <laughs> 10 and 10-2... Uh, 11 and 12. Notice how we didn't pick any of the good Final Fantasies, folks. Well, these are only on PS2. These are the only ones that actually came out on the PS2. You could go backwards compatible, so technically anything in the PS1 was playable in the PS2, but only released on PS2 was 10, 10, 2, 11, and 12, plus uh, Final Fantasy VII, The Dirge of Cerberus. Uh, we also got uh, Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, and Rechain of Memories on PS2. And I only mention these because Final Fantasies 10, 12, Kingdom Hearts 1, and Kingdom Hearts 2 are the only games I own for PS2. Uh, out of that whole list you rattled off, I've only ever played 10 and 10, 2, and I own none of them. 
Uh, I love 10 and 10 too. I love 12 because we got the bunny girl. Um, and Kingdom Hearts is easily in my top three favorite video game franchises of all times. See, this is okay because you've missed quite a few on your list here now that I'm actually looking at it. So, of course, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to have time to finish it because, I mean, it's already three digits as it is. But All right, here we go. Are you ready? I'm going to dive in. Go ahead. All right, so 2001, aside from uh, launching with Luigi's Mansion, we also got the first Peakman. Uh, which was really great, uh, you know, tiny hero with plant creatures trying to save the world. Uh, we got the original Super Smash Brothers, which is its own franchise <laughs> at this point. What? It's not the original. Isn't it? Came out for the N64, bud. Oh, do I mean Brawl then? Uh, you mean, no, I mean Melee. Melee. Well, it's fine. It's it's good enough to be the first. <laughs> Wow, some fanboy you are. <laughs> I prefer Melee over over the original. But over that's the fine. game that you didn't even know existed? It's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then we've got Sonic 2 Adventure Battle. Yeah, that's arguably the best, although you and I are the only two people that would make that argument. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and then in 2002, we got The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. Uh, we got Super Mario Sunshine, which this actually uh, is the first time Nintendo launched a console without a Mario game in, in its launch lineup. No, that's also incorrect. I literally just read that. Why is that not true? The original NES. Or, I'm sorry, the original Famicom, if we want to be technical. Didn't it release with a Mario game? Nope, not at launch. Damn internet lying to me. <laughs> All right. Well, but it's I mean, the first it was time the first while. one since the Famicom. Okay. So yeah, uh, we also got Animal Crossing and the first Metroid Prime, which spun off into its own series, and we're looking forward to the fourth one now on the Switch. Uh, Two thousand three, we got Mario Kart Double Dash and F Zero GX, which I'm going to talk about at length when you're done. But go I'm ahead. I'm sure you are. Uh, F Zero GX was pretty cool because uh, it launched with an arcade version as well that you could ostensibly take your memory card into and like bring your racer from your GameCube game. I thought that was a really cool gimmick, but I've, I never ended up seeing one of the F zero arcade cabinets in out in the wild. So I never bought the GameCube game. Well, I'm going to talk about why, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. continue. Uh, then in 2004, we get Pikmin two uh, we get the first WarioWare game, which really kind of blew up on the Nintendo DS. Uh, we get the second Paper Mario game, Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door, ostensibly the best one. Uh, and we also get Custom Robo, which is the first entry uh, in in what was a Nintendo franchise in Japan. We got the first one on the GameCube over here. 2005, we got... Fire Emblem Path of Radiance and Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, two of the best games on the GameCube, in my humble opinion. Uh, Fire Emblem Path of Radiance was the first, again, the first entry of Fire Emblem. They were really testing the, um, they were kind of just testing the, the bounds over here. That we got in a home console. Uh, we did get Sacred Stones translated, which is kind of a remake of an older game. But Path of Radiance is the first one that released both in Japan and in the U.S. And Path of Radiance launched the U.S.'s fascination with it, which is why we get every single final Fire Emblem game now. 
going back one year in 2004, we get Baton Kados, um, the floating islands in the eternal ocean or something like that. It's an amazing game. I talked about it a couple of episodes ago. Uh, but in 2006, we get its prequel, uh, Bait and Kato's Origins. Uh, 2006 also gave us The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess and Chibi Robo. Um, I, I would argue Twilight Princess is one of the better Zelda games out there. And uh, Chibi Robo is fantastic and spun off its own little series. Uh, there are five games that I wanted to mention that are non-exclusive to the GameCube, but they weren't on either of our lists. And I feel like these were all well maybe not all but most of these were were pretty iconic for this console generation so 2003 gave us soul caliber 2 which released on the xbox the ps2 and the gamecube and each version of it on each platform had uh, a platform exclusive character so the gamecube version got link uh the playstation version got a tekken character and then i think I think the Xbox got Darth Vader. Yeah, that seems right. He had like yeah. a lightsaber or something. Yeah. Uh, in 2003, we also got the non-exclusive game Metal Arms Glitch in the System, which was a really great third-person shooter. Um, 2004 gave us the psychological thriller Second Sight, uh, which was all about uh, having psychic powers and breaking out of a mental, mental institution. And uh, there was some crazy shit there. Uh, we also got Tales of Symphonia in 2004, which I list here as non-exclusive because it was ported to PS2 the, uh, the next year. Uh, we also got Resident Evil 4 in 2005, which was ported to PS2 in the same year. So I feel like these five were pretty iconic for this generation, um, but they weren't exclusive, so I wanted to make sure we got them in there. All right, I can add a few uh, that you left out for whatever reason. Uh, for the exclusives, I'm very surprised you did not list uh, Eternal Darkness. I didn't have it. Uh, this was another insane game that unfortunately did not sell very well in which you actually had three meters. You had your health, you had your magic, but then you also had a sanity meter. Because the full name of the game was Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem. Uh, and basically when you ran out of sanity, different shit would happen. Uh, the game would pretend to brick. It would pretend to wipe your memory card. Your character would just, like, his head would fall off and you'd run around. Just different wild shit would happen. Uh, I have to throw a bone to Rogue Squadron 2, one of the launch titles, which was an exclusive. I, As we established in some of the movie episodes, I'm not really a Star Wars guy. This game was an insane flight sim. It played with some of the storylines from the movies and from the expanded universe as it existed at the time. You got to play as Wedge, and I believe the man from the movies who played Wedge actually was the voice actor in the games. And they had some fun alternate reality missions uh, where you played as Vader and attacked Yavin and different things. Uh, and it wasn't like the shitty third game where they decided to do the shitty Star Fox thing where you run around and it's a first-person shooter. No, this one was all in ships the way it should be. Uh, for non-exclusives, you picked the wrong Resident Evil. Uh, the remake, how did you forget that? I don't like Resident Evil games, so there is no wrong or right Resident Evil. Uh, and technically, the remake wasn't exclusive because while you can get it on Xbox Live Arcade and the PlayStation Store now, those are just digital downloads. The hard copy only ever came out uh, 
for the GameCube, for what it's worth. It's fine. I, d- I don't play uh, horror games, so it doesn't register. Uh, the, re- the Resident Evil remake, the, ori- you know, the original game, uh, if you've never played it, holy fucking shit, it's fantastic. And uh, what was the second non-exclusive I had in my mind? Oh, the uh, Metal Gear Solid, the Twin Snakes. Yeah. Which, which was interesting because it was kind of an exclusive because they changed some things and they merged a few things. But that was really, really fucking good. That's another one that unfortunately is really, really hard to find and is actually really expensive. Uh, now, briefly, if I may, Metal Gear, or F-Zero GX, rather. Yeah. I only bringing this up because I bought this on Friday. Again. Of course you did. I paid $90 for it. Because it had a very, very low print run because people are dumb. I owned this game when it was new, when it came out. And unfortunately, when I was in college, I was down on my luck a little bit. I needed some money. I had to let the game go. Been looking for it ever since. Finally got a copy in the wild and I jumped on it. Holy fucking shit, is this game good. This still holds up today. (laughs) Holds up graphically. It holds up play-wise. It's brutally difficult. But you have things, like, there are 30 racers in a race. Most, like, the modern Forzas and shit don't have 30 cars on track at a time. Uh, Again, it's basically an arcade game. It released, uh, likewise, with F-Zero AX, which was the arcade version, as uh, DJ mentioned, the reason why you never saw one in the wild, DJ, is less than 100 of them ever made it to America. Yeah. The vast majority went to Japan. They also had the nasty habit of bricking your memory card <laughs> if you took them over. Uh, but unfortunately, it is the only way still to this day to unlock the hardest level of races and some of the last ship parts because you could build your own ships in the game. So basically, because of that, Nintendo released a game that you could not beat 100%. <laughs> um, and there's no cheat codes. There's no, you know, there's no Game Shark for the GameCube that I know of. Uh, but uh, so there's no actual way to get that. It is also the last F Zero game. It came out in 2003. It's 18 fucking years ago. It's old enough to vote now. And uh, Miyamoto, you know, the head of Nintendo has basically said multiple times that they're never going to make another one because people complain that this one was too hard. Because it is, it's hard. And they, you know, it sold very poorly. So because of that, the closest thing we ever got was we had one attraction in the Nintendo Land game for the Wii U. Mm. That was the, that's the closest we're ever going to get to uh, another F-Zero game. And most kids these days think Captain Falcon is just a Smash Brothers character. Yeah, isn't the latest one like the Smash Brothers Ultimate? Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, but if go online, watch videos of it, just, you know, the zero-G controls, you're, you're going at 1,100, it's not miles an hour, it's 1,100 kilometers an hour, but that translates to something like 750 miles an hour, and it's one of the few games that actually gives you a proper sensation of speed, and you're on the absolute edge of control at any given moment, it's an arcade game, so you still have lives, you still have continues, and if you run out, hey, guess what? You failed that cup. You have to start all over at the beginning. It's brutal, it's unforgiving, but god damn, is it fun. And it also had a library editor. You can make your own decals and paint jobs and shit long before that became mainstream. You do love those. Well, you know, it's nice. So yes, uh, GameCube is awesome, PlayStation 2 is a lot better than it had any right to be. 
Let's be brutally honest. I mean, when you look back, the the PlayStation 1 was sort of the plucky underdog that set the tone. The PlayStation 3 had one of the worst launches in recorded history and then came good at the end. The PlayStation 4 crushed all comers. The PlayStation 5 is a fun myth that maybe one day will be released. Hey, it's pretty great. But nobody really talks about the PlayStation 2 as anything other than this utilitarian sales juggernaut that can do absolutely everything. You know, oh, you can play music, you can play DVDs, you can play PlayStation 1 games. And you might have a few hardcore people that say, oh, look at, you know, Shadow of the Colossus, because the original came out for the PlayStation 2. Or more commonly, you'll have somebody say, oh, San Andreas, bro, got to play San Andreas. But it's not really held up as this titan of gaming history, you know, for the art that is video games. I, but I, it, it does I, pretty well. I think it really depends on who you talk to, though. You know, I, I am fighting against my own console here, and I do love the GameCube. You know, I, I think it does achieve video game as art in some really funky ways that only Nintendo ever seems to do. But I, in, in the circles I used to travel in, in in high school and college, the PS2 is lauded. I mean, I, the Kingdom Hearts games, the Final Fantasy games, it had really great shooters. It had really great adventure games. Uh, a lot of the really great games in this generation started to be cross-console. So it had yes, all of those Yes, and I think well. that's the problem. I mean, they're really... There aren't a whole hell of a lot of earth-shattering, history-making exclusives. I mean, okay, you know, Rockstar signed the big deal with Sony, and that was huge at the time, and you got uh, Grand Theft Auto San, and- or San Andreas, you got Vice City. I think th- Grand Theft Auto 3 was a PS2 exclusive. Um, you know, you had the SOCOM games, but they don't even exist anymore. I mean, that series is dead. Yeah, but I mean... so. <laughs> Uh, Sony had a stranglehold on Square Enix for six Final Fantasy games. Yeah, but I mean, as you proved, none of them were good. I mean, they, so, they are good. <laughs> the, it's it's just an interesting, you know, the multi-platform aspect of it really kind of took some of the luster off. And I think you saw a lot of that with the PlayStation 4 versus Switch versus uh, whatever the hell... Xbox 721.925, it really became a war of exclusives. And, you know, you're seeing that now with Microsoft. uh, Elder Scrolls is now going to be an Xbox exclusive. Fallout's going to be an Xbox exclusive. Uh, It's all coming back full circle again. And, you know, you and I talked a little bit about this off air. I would make the argument, arguing against my own console here for a minute, that the GameCube is probably the most underrated system of all time, underutilized system of all time. And I go back and forth between that and the 64, but God, playing F-Zero again, holy fuck. I I mean, I'll close out with my argument that if you look at all of the huge Nintendo franchises, your Zeldas, your Metroids, your, your Marios, uh, I contend that the best the best those franchises have been have been on the GameCube. You would have something there if you didn't include Mario. I think Mario Sunshine's the best Mario game. I I I I'll take it to my grave. Woof. There's a hot take for you folks. Yeah, there's there's my hot take. 
<laughs> Super Mario Sunshine is the best Mario game. I, uh, I've only ever heard that hot take one other time, and we're, we're, we're not going to get into that here. Um, <laughs> but woof. <laughs> well, Just woof. I, I, I don't take us home because I, I don't know where to. You have literally broken my brain with that. I mean, that that's it's like saying Godfather three is the best Godfather. Oh, my. That's be. like saying, yes, they need to make another Matrix movie. This is a good idea. They I do. Mean, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, God <laughs> damn it. Anyway, we're going to throw another W in the DJ column for this one. Thank you, <laughs> listeners. Uh, we definitely want to welcome you to subscribe to this podcast. I wanted to say wonderful, but it, it, it's been <laughs> a little long today, so who knows? Yeah, uh, I mean, it, you know, one of us likes Super Mario Sunshine, so. <laughs> uh, if you like what you've listened to today, uh, feel free to throw us a, a rating on iTunes. Uh, give us a review. That, that really helps us out. Uh we are online in a number of places and you can get a hold of us. Uh, we have a website, the witandwhiskeycast.com. Uh, we are on Gmail at the witandwhiskeycast at gmail.com. We are at the witandwhiskeycast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're not out on TikTok or Twitter or any of those just yet, uh, but we, we might someday. Who knows? Uh, there's no H and Wit and E and Whiskey, uh, much to Mark's chagrin. Uh, you can find us uh, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Podbean and Listen Notes. Uh, we release every Friday morning, 8 a.m., so we're, we're right there waiting for you. If you hit that subscribe button, we'll be ready for your lunch break. Um, do we have a topic for next week? I'm assuming they're going to come and burn down your house after that Mario take. <laughs> so, no, uh, we, we don't as of yet. Uh, what? Again, I'm still broken here, so uh, help me out. What do you feel like talking about next week? <laughs> Let me look at our topics again. I mean, I won't be ready for the Roman Empire because I'll be doing fucking Christmas tours out the ass all next week, and I'll just be ready to kill somebody as it is. But uh, otherwise... Do we want to do another D&D type topic? Lord knows there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> there is. Do we want to make arguments for and against certain classes? Oh, my God. Hot takes on classes? Hot takes and whiskey, classes, and... Well, it'll probably, it'll probably be closer to character creation because I'm sure I'm going to get into races and feats, but it's going to fo- mainly focus on classes. Why don't, we, why don't we just have, uh, like, why don't we just talk about character classes? Okay. Yeah, that, that way it's not a hot takes thing and we can take it easy and not go swinging for the fences (laughs) somehow i feel like we almost need to include nick on this but that's neither here nor there (laughs) all right so next week character classes and whiskey well we'll talk about character design and and creating a, a compelling rp character and uh after our last campaign we'll even be able to tell you what not to do warlocks they suck yeah don't do it just, uh, we, just don't. <laughs> we always want to thank Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro music. Uh, we're going to try to get him uh, back on this season to talk about Star Wars because uh, God knows there's so much more Star Wars happening now. And hey, you know, when you, t- when you see your sensei next time, ask him what he thinks so far of the World Chess Championships. Uh, I have been following a little bit. One of the websites that I like has been doing, they've been live tweeting on the three matchups so far that have gone collectively, I want to say 
something like 13 and a half hours combined. Bluff. And all three of them have ended in draws so far. So um, just just curious. I was thinking of Brian today when I was reading the the breakdown from the last match. So when, I, when you see him, ask him what he thinks. I'll have to ask him. I know he's got a chess tournament coming up in December, so um, I'm sure he'll have some news for us. But yeah, uh, until next time, cheers. Salut. <laughs> God damn fucking Super Mario Sunshine. <laughs>